You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. Before we get started, I want to let you know that in this next segment, we're going to be talking about some sensitive topics that might not be suitable for everyone. So please use discretion if you are listening with young children. Intimacy has changed for all of us in recent years. It can be attributed to a lot of different things, online and app dating, social media, the Me Too movement, and a reckoning with toxic masculinity. But how has all of this affected young people and the ways they engage in, think, and talk about intimate emotions and behavior? Author Peggy Orenstein is a best-selling author, and she's been studying young women for 25 years. Her book, Girls and Sex, was a candid look at the ways young women grapple with intimacy in a confusing era. Her latest book takes a look at the other side of that equation. Boys and Sex is about young men and the things Orenstein discovers about boys and the way they are dealing with sex and intimacy, I have to say, make for real page-turning reading. Peggy Orenstein, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So in the book, you address the lack of candid conversation about sex coming from trusted adults. How does this silence impact boys' sexual development? Well, you know, what what guys tend to hear is um, from their parents is don't get a girl pregnant, don't catch a disease, and respect women, which brings us back to to your previous segment, of course, which was the best possible lead-in. And, and I, you know, one thing I I do want to say about that whole discussion is not only talking about that with your boys in terms of um, what happened and what the senator said, but thinking, talking with your boys about what happens when boys, other guys in their world, say things like that. How do you What's your respond? Yeah. What's your responsibility? How do you stand up? And how hard that is, because that was something that boys... I just had a Division One athlete come up to me the other night in Chicago and ask me about this. Um, and one of the boys uh, in my book, um, Cole, told me this story about how he tried to stand up in one of those locker room situations where a guy said something despicable about a woman. And, um, you know, he got laughed at and targeted. And so the next time... He did not, but his friend did, and he said he watched as this kept happening, as the other boy kept stepping up and he kept stepping back. Mm. And he said the other guy, you know, other guys started liking him less, and he lost all his social capital. And he said, but I was just sitting here with buckets of it and not spending it, and I don't know what to do. How do, you know, I, how do I choose between my own dignity and being part of the team? I don't want to have to do that. You know, I, I don't know how to do it. And so when I hear a story like that, I think this is such an opportunity not only to validate, you know, girls and talk about what we go through as women, but to help boys understand the culture that they are socialized into and the ways that their own silence and what they can't say and what they don't say and what they won't say affects that culture and how they grow up as men. Mm. So uh, sticking with the, the, the previous segment and this state senator here in Michigan who made these inappropriate comments to a, a, a female reporter in front of an all-boys group, uh, talk about that level of responsibility and the dynamic there 
when something like that happens. I mean, it, it, would it have been reasonable, for instance, to think about whether one of the boys might have said that's inappropriate? Now, that's a lot Imagine. of Imagine. It's a lot, a lot to ask to of a boy. On, it's yeah. a lot to ask of a boy. It's a lot of personal responsibility. And truly, you know, this is it, it is where adult men um, need to be mentoring and guiding boys. And there's a lot of work on, for instance, the role of coaches in creating an environment um, in those all-boy um, enclaves that um, disrupts and, and, and doesn't tolerate and understands the, the harm of that kind of behavior, locker room behavior. Mm. Um, but what if a boy did speak up? You know, there's probably a lot of guys sitting there thinking, that wasn't okay. But what happens is, is that boys learn, you know, not to speak out. And, and what they learn in those sort of locker room conversations where um, control of female bodies basically is used to reinforce male bonding um, is that they're supposed to talk about sex in this really detached, disengaged, invulnerable way. So what is it? You know, you bang, you pound, you slam, you hammer, you nail, you pipe, you hit that, you tap that. You know, it's like they went to a construction site um, mm. rather mm. than that they engaged in intimacy. And there's so much in that that disconnects boys from their ability to either speak out or to be able to feel vulnerable. Boys would talk to me all the time about feeling like they had to train themselves not to feel or they had to you know, put their feelings behind a wall in order to engage with the world in what they thought was an appropriately masculine way. So let's talk about your book, which, as I said in the open, is a real page turner. I mean, I, I, I really was riveted to each story that's that's in there. And what I love about it is that it is full of stories. It is full of stories from these young men. You went and spoke with them and listened to them about the way that they navigate the world of intimacy and sex uh, in in an era where, of course, things are very different than they would have been when I was uh, a young man 30 years ago. Uh, and, and of course, th- there are lots of influences that they're dealing with that, uh, that uh, I would not have uh, even understood at that age. But let's start with this approach that you took, this this tour of the world of young men and listening to them. Uh, how did you get them to, to open up, first of all? <laughs> People always um, act like it's a big trick. I don't know. You know, yeah. So I went, I mean, there's, you know, the, the, the book is undergirded by all, you know, tons and tons of, um, of research on, on men and masculinity and sex. Uh, but what I did and what I, what I really felt was that nobody was talking to boys in this new era mm-hmm. and nobody was listening to them about, you know, their perspective on sex sex, on masculinity, on emotional intimacy, in, in, in the struggles that they were going through. And I think, you know, the big secret trick was I gave them permission to talk. And I did worry going into this that I would have, you know, boys don't have a reputation for chatting. And I thought I might have a lot of transcripts that consisted of, uh-huh, <laughs> nope. <laughs> you know, those but of us who have teenage boys are very familiar you know what with I'm talking about, right? And, right? <laughs> but the the fact is, and and maybe more than any particular conclusion in the book, the the eagerness that they that uh, with which they spoke to me, how eager they were to talk, and how rarely they had the opportunity to explore their interior lives or their sexual experience, and how often they said, you know, this was cathartic, or I've never told anybody any of these things before, or I've never talked like this. I mean, I just felt that it was really about giving boys permission and space and and approaching them with curiosity and lack of judgment um, to hear what they had to say, and they really wanted to tell me, mm-hmm. bluntly. 
Hmm. I might add. Things I can't say on the radio, obviously. <laughs> right. Uh, I, I want to read just a little from uh, part of your book in a chapter called Are You Experienced? And it's under the subhead of uh, Anatomy of a Hookup. You write, there are two contradictory trends identified in reports about young people's sex lives. One is that they are virtually celibate, too busy playing Fortnite, watching porn, scrolling through Instagram, or otherwise living screen-mediated lives to actually connect with another human being. The other is that, quote, hookup culture, along with a plethora of Tinder-type swipe apps, has made sex so accessible that everyone is bed-hopping in a nonstop booze-fueled bacchanal. The truth lies somewhere in between. I, I, I love that passage because I think it, it, it gets to the idea that there are these two real extreme poles that I think uh, many people subscribe to about what is going on with young people, uh, but that the idea that either of those could reflect reality for most people is kind of absurd and that there are lots of sort of intermediary steps between those two poles where most people are are spending their time and trying to figure out what the right thing to do is. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the other thing is, is that word hookup that kids use now, that is absolutely meaningless. It is a meaningless word. It is intentionally ambiguous so that other um, people will overestimate what you do. And it also means that you overestimate what your peers are doing, which means that um, it can uh, encourage unwanted sex or, um, you know, being being pushy. And But when we talk about, so, the, so and, you know, Young People Day, I think, your listeners would safely be able to say, did not invent casual sex. (laughs) But what has changed is the idea of hookup culture. And that's the notion that um, sex is supposed to precede emotional intimacy. So dating is the last thing on the agenda. And that casual sex has become the normalized path to a relationship, even though most hookups won't lead to one. Hmm. And that is what's prevalent on most college and many high school campuses right now. Yeah. So, so talk about these influences, social media, app dating, the accessibility of porn, and then these cultural dynamics that are going on and unfolding mostly among adults, the the, the Me Too movement and increased discussion about what boundaries should look like and how we ought to respond to inappropriate, not just uh, discussion or or comments, but inappropriate behavior. Um, you've talked with many, many of these young men. How are they processing all of that? And what is the sort of what's the consequence of all that on their journey through uh uh, through the the, the maze of intimacy and sex and all these things that everybody has to figure out at some point. Just a little question, huh? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's that's the reason why I felt like a book like Boys and Sex was so important right at this moment Hmm. Um, because kids are living in a radically, boys are now living in a radically transformed um, culture where on one hand they are steeped in sexualized media, whether it's mainstream media or porn. Um, We're also telling them that 
justifiably and correctly, um, the rules of consent um, have changed and are, you know, more more appropriate to what they ought to be. Um, and then, you know, and then adults are not talking to them. So they're living with these contradictions and trying to figure this out. Schools aren't saying anything. Adults, as, as you said earlier, they're basically saying, um, you know, don't get a girl pregnant, uh, don't get a disease and respect women, which is like saying, you know, one boy said to me, that's like saying, uh, don't run over any little old ladies and handing a kid the car keys, you know? <laughs> um, you, you don't know how to, you don't expect to run over any little old ladies, but you don't know how to drive. Mm. Um, so they're struggling with this. And I, and I think if you're asking, if you're asking the porn question, um, I think what adults need to know is, well, first of all, you know, curiosity about sex is normal. Masturbation is a very important aspect of sexual development. Um, but what's change and and there's a lot of different kinds of porn there's ethical porn queer porn feminist porn etc but in 2007 with the advent of pornhub the paywall dropped on on the most easily accessible form of porn and that shows over and over reinforces this idea um that of male sexual dominance female sexual submission of sex is something men do to women rather than with them of female sexual pleasure as a performance for men and kids are using that as the de facto sex educator. And so when we don't get in there as parents, and I know you would rather poke yourself in the eye with a fork than talk to your son about porn. I know. <laughs> but if you don't get in there and start having a conversation about what's real and what's not real, and they will say they know, but they don't, hmm. um, you know, they're going to bring that into the bedroom and it's going to negatively affect um, their partnered interactions, um, young men who are regular porn users actually have been shown in research to be less satisfied with their partnered interactions and with their own performance and with their partner's bodies. And I think the most poignant thing I heard around this was a boy who said to me that he said, he said, I just feel like that natural organic process of being able to, you know, discover what sex is with a partner and explore that without preconceived notions has been destroyed for this generation by porn. Wow. Wow. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. My guest is Peggy Orenstein. She is the author of Girls and Sex, which was a pivotal look at the way young women are navigating sex and intimacy. But her latest book is Boys and Sex, which just came out last week and takes a look at the opposite side of the gender spectrum and ponders why and how young men are dealing differently with these questions than young women, but also dealing differently with these questions than uh, their fathers did, for instance, uh, many years ago. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us if you're a young person in your teens or your 20s who is navigating this world of intimacy for the first time. Or if you're older, how do you remember intimacy and forming romantic relationships in general when you were young. Did it seem easier than what young people are navigating now? Are you a parent who has talked to or at least tried to talk to your kids about intimacy and sex and found it difficult because your experiences aren't very relevant to what kids are experiencing now? Uh, if you have a son, how do you go about that, especially around issues of consent? If you have a daughter, how do you approach the subject with them. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 
577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, before we get to listeners, uh, I, I want to ask you about the differences between boys and girls or young men and young women uh, navigating this period in their lives at the same time dealing with the same influences, uh, my sense is that there there are profound differences in the way that they react to it. But but I'm curious, given your broad work in this in this area, what you make of the distinctions. Well, you know, I, I think in the kind of most overarching way, if I were to give you like the, the soundbite on the two books side by side, Girls and Sex, Boys and Sex, mm-hmm. I would say that Girls and Sex was very much about how girls are disconnected from their bodies and their body's responses um, and how that affects them and and their sexual interactions. And with guys, it was all about how they were sort of systematically disconnected from their heart and from their vulnerability and how that affects not only them but radiate, uh, radiates outward into this culture um, and affects their romantic partners and encourages a kind of... Um, disconnection and undermines personal relationships. Hmm. Disconnection is a word that I think for me invokes a lot of um, a lot of feelings and thoughts about not just porn, which I think as you were talking about earlier is really different, but but almost all of the tools that we have now that supposedly would make, intimacy and relationships easier, but I think make them more difficult. And it is because the, well, because of the, the, the false narrative of that connection. In other words, this idea that uh, an app somehow makes it mm. uh, easier or better to meet somebody. I think it, it, it sort of undercuts a lot of the connection that, that you would yeah. expect people to be able to make. Yeah. And I mean, just a sort of on a a similar note, you know, one of the things I did was go to um, a freshman pregame party, Mm -hmm. a a college freshman pregame party where they're, you know, the party before the party, Mm -hmm. because that's not at all awkward to have someone who looks like your mom at that party or be that person. (laughs) Um, But and, and then the kids went off to the party. And then the next day we were talking about what, you know, what happened at the frat party. And they started talking about um the morning after text and the importance of the morning after text and how long you wait and what you say and whether you have Y-O-U or you and all of this. And I was just thinking, this is insane. Like from the perspective of somebody who is the age of their parents, this sounds crazy. Um, But it was so vivid to them. And a a boy who read um, the book, a teenager who read the book, um, emailed me and said, that part just really struck me because right before I was reading it, I had been sitting on my bed trying to compose a sex, uh, a text to this girl that I had um, hooked up with. And I spent like a half hour trying, stopping, trying, stopping, trying to get the right tone, trying mm. to get the right language. And then I just gave up. Hmm. Hmm. And, and, I, and I it's think, so low stakes, right? Yeah, it's a text. It's a text. But, but I, I have to say, I, I can relate to that. I mean, uh, the, the, there are many times when you're texting someone and, and not just about personal matters, but about business, for instance, and you're struggling with tone and you're struggling right, because with there's intent. no affect. There's you can't no, see. Right. There's you no, can't see a person's face. It's and, a one and dimensional that, form yeah. of communication. And that also would play into, you know, one of the things that that, you know, 
just is, is like viral in communities all over the country are these scandals where um, a closed group chat or uh, Finsta, fake Instagram account that's a private account where, you know, you just have with your friends and um, that things come up where there, there are these uh, – where boys have been sending around sexual or racist memes or saying horrible things. And that comes up over and over and over. And I think part of the reason, yes, is the socialization guys undergo, but also in that context of um, social media or texting where you can't see somebody. What a guy said to me is, you know, you're trying to kind of like top – the other guy, and you, and if you were in a room, you might never say something like that, or you might say something like, you know, that's too far, dude, or you'd see somebody's face and you'd stop. But there's that disconnect again um, when you're doing it on social media or when you're doing it via text that just makes you get worse and worse and worse and spiral because um, you're trying to get a reaction and you can't see that reaction. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Peggy Orenstein, author of Boys and Sex, and we are going to get to your calls. Chantel in Bloomfield, Bernadette in Redford, Tom in Northwest Detroit, Chris in Shelby Township. We will hear from you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've tuned in. My guest is Peggy Orenstein. She is the author of a new book titled Boys and Sex, which just came out last week, and takes a really deep dive into the world of intimacy and sex among young men trying to navigate a world that's become much more complicated than it was, for instance, when I was a young man. We're talking about how difficult that is and how they're meeting that difficulty. Uh, we also want to hear from you. Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. What do you think about young people navigating the world of intimacy with social app dating and uh, porn being accessible in ways that it never was before with the Me Too movement lurking in the background? Uh, do you have a child who is in that age group and you're trying to help your son figure all of this out? Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phone. So you can also go to Facebook and Twitter and join us there and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Peggy, I want to start this segment with a, a call from Chantel in Bloomfield, who I think takes us to another area of the book that I really wanted to discuss. Chantel, what's on your mind? Hi, um, thank you for taking my call. Mm -hmm. And this is a great topic because I was just kind of navigating this conversation with my son who is entering that age. He's 13 and he's African-American and you mm -hmm. have this new Me Too movement. And we've always had this issue being of color, but it's even more advanced. Um, it's stricter. And how do you help navigate him through this? That's that's kind of the questions and the things I'm trying to tell him mm -hmm. because it's, it's tougher. Yeah. yeah. So, so, Chantel, before I uh, let Peggy address that, and, and she does talk a lot about this issue in the book, um, can you give us a little more about what it is that, that is, is particular about that challenge for, for African-Americans, for those of us who are, are, are black in this society? 
talk about the things. Yeah, go ahead. And also, when right now we're living in the suburbs, most of your peers are, well, half of your peers are white, Mm -hmm. and the other, you know, three quarters, you know, the other quarter is, you know, of mixed descent. They get different reactions from Mm -hmm. authority Mm -hmm. and from the teachers, from the other kids themselves when they do the same action. Yep. So um, a black boy talking to a girl, and the girl doesn't really matter what color she is either, um, he's reprimanded more strictly by his peers sometimes. Um, Sometimes he's encouraged more by his peers, but definitely by the administration with school and the police, it's always stricter. Yeah, uh, Chantel, obviously I can relate uh, very strongly to that, given that I'm also raising uh, an African-American boy here in Metro Detroit. But but I'm really glad you called and and shared that. Peggy Ornstein, you do write a lot in the book about the differences among boys of different ethnic background and how they navigate all this. Yeah, and and Chantel, what you just said is exactly hitting the nail on the head um, in terms of what African-American boys who were growing up in largely white communities would say to me. That combination of, on one hand, being kind of hypersexualized and fetishized as like the coolest guy in the room, but also that could turn really fast into um, being sort of seen as um, suspicious and predatory. And they were really struggling with that tension. I think you'll, you'll, that you and your son will find a lot to relate to um, among those boys and that kind of also quandary where African-American boys are more likely to be um, accused of sexual misconduct, more likely to be brought up on charges and punished for sexual misconduct. Um, and there's a whole history uh, in this country of using the uh, of using false accusation of African-American men as a tool of social control, mm-hmm. while there is also simultaneously a history in this country of using rape as a tool of social, actual rape as a tool of social control of women. So... You know, putting those two things side by side can also cause tension between um, African-American students on campus and white feminists who are doing anti-rape work. And so, you know, one of the things that like that one boy said to me, and I'm sure your son, um, he's a little young, but would be able to relate to this, was, you know, I don't want to go party with a bunch of drunk white kids because anything can happen. And if I'm the only black guy in the room... I'm the only black guy in the room. Is this Xavier that you're referring to? The the uh, Xavier and Emmett, yeah. And Emmett, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then on the flip side of that, I mean, we see white masculinity as kind of neutral. Um, and and I got very interested in the flip sides of the coin that white masculinity was tossing in the air. So the hypersexualization and potential, you know, seen being seen as a predator among African American boys, and then the Asian American boys who were seen as asexual as and asexual. non-masculine. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I and found so that one fascinating. of one of those guys, you know, for instance, was said to me that um, there's a lot of sexual racism on swipe apps. And he had been matched with a girl and they were going back and forth and she said, "Hey, we could be friends, but no offense, I don't date Asian guys." Mm. And he turned to me and just went how is that no offense? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? A, when a, you know, whenever someone says no offense, 
You it always prepared. means offense. You're about to be yeah. offended, right? Right. <laughs> You're about right. to be insulted. Right. Yeah. And that's what, you know, I, I remember an African-American boy, too, saying to me that in his dorm that this, you know, that some people would always say, well, I don't mean to be racist, but he's like, why do you need to say that? <laughs> <laughs> because you're about to be racist. <laughs> because you're about to be racist. That would be the only reason. But really watching um, watching those guys in largely white environments and the particular psychological toll that it was taking on them mm-hmm. um, was was really important. And not only, I mean, I feel like I don't, have, you know, I think parents who are raising boys of color, you know how to talk to your kids about racism. But I think that in a broader cultural context, thinking about um, how, you know, about gendered racism, Mm -hmm. how how that's different, and also about sexual racism and how that plays out. Because I think a lot of kids today are very, you know, aware. They're very woke. They want to, you know, work on racism and stuff, but they leave it at the door um, in social and sexual situations. Mm. Uh, again, Chantel, thanks very much for the call and the comments. Let's go to Bernadette in Redford. Bernadette, welcome Good to the morning. show. Good hey. morning. I read Miss Ornstein's book after I heard her interview on Terry Gross's Fresh Air. Mm-hmm. I was both enlightened and horrified by what I read. <laughs> My uh, first experience with dating was in the 70s, and the book that I read was The Joy of Sex. Mm. I had to hide it at a friend's house in a brown paper <laughs> bag. And when I think of the pornography, that people are exposed to now, I am just horrified. Um, It also brought to mind that particularly the man who occupies the White House is locked into a juvenile um, frame of sexuality as described in the book. And his tone in regard to women just seems not to have evolved. One other thing, how is it that men are able to accomplish to accomplish anything in this world if their minds are always on set? <laughs> well, that I can't answer. But I know. we don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I do feel that the, that the Trump presidency and his his comments about women and his you know um, conquest attitude towards sex does offer this opportunity. You know, I mean, that's part of why I think I, I felt like publishing this book now. Um, was was so great as opposed to five years ago or ten years ago that it just brought it all forward. Mm. Um, so in a way, you know, this 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 opens the door to allow us to have these conversations with our boys. And you brought up joy of sex and the way that we thought about these things in the seventies. Um, for that reason, I always say that parents and it's a funny thing to say on national, you know, on on a, on a um, public radio station, but you actually need to go and look at Pornhub if you haven't, because and it's not going to mess up your computer or whatever. But um, <laughs> if you have that '70s porn notion in your head, then you really are um, completely inaccurate hmm. in terms of what your What's sons available. and your daughters are looking at. And you do need to see because you do need to understand really why you need to get in there and have a discussion with them about it. Yeah, uh, the the discussion that's happening now, as you point out, is is influenced heavily by the president and his own language and his own behavior. But a lot of people, and I would agree, would say it's a negative influence that he's inserting into the into the conversation. Yes, it is. <laughs> so, so what's the what's the way in which I mean, other than than publishing books, which you're able to do, but not everyone is. But what's the way to change that discussion in a way that is more positive? I mean, how do you? push back against the leader of the free world who happens to also be 
a terrible sexist and <laughs> and and certainly has a history that suggests predation of of a, a particular bent. Yeah. Well, and you know, I, I I think that we have to have these discussions and we have to talk to our sons not only and our daughters um not only about the behavior in the white house but the ways that we tend to want to make these things into good guys and monsters and one thing when i was listening um to the to the segment that you were doing before i was on a guy was calling in and saying well you know he was you know his words were taken out of your state senator's words were taken out of context and i thought you know what he's trying to say is he's a good guy and we want to think that everybody who commits misconduct, everybody who harasses, everybody who assaults is a monster. Mm-hmm. But that can blind us to the fact that, you know, good guys can do a really bad thing. Mm. And we need to figure out um, how to talk to guys about that. And also for when, you know, when that happens, especially with young men, not with somebody that age, but with, with boys, are there ways that we can create pathways to accountability um, and, and I saw a lot of boys that were struggling with things that they knew they had done, mm. but that they didn't know how to address or acknowledge. And one of the things in the book that I talk a lot about is um, restorative justice, which yeah. we'll have to talk about another yes, time. another time, because we mm-hmm. are out of time. Peggy Orenstein, it was really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you so much for having me. Mm-hmm. All right, that's going to do it for me today. I will be back tomorrow when former U.S. National Security Advisor Susan Rice is going to join to talk about her new book, Tough Love, and her upcoming talk right here in Detroit. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.